0: This podcast was made possible by the ALF Silicon Valley Network. With a special thanks to our Leadership Circle members and our 2022 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Lisa and Matt Sonsini and Adobe Inc. Thank you. Welcome to the
1: dialogue.
0: Well, welcome, everybody. (laughs) And um, looking forward to this great conversation with Judge Cordell. Um, I want to just begin by saying, Judge Cordell, it's truly an honor, no pun intended, to moderate (laughs) this dialogue about your amazing book. Um, You know, I'm one of your biggest fans and not because you've had this phenomenal career and you're the first African-American female Superior Court judge in Northern California, um, but really because I first met you when I was in high school. I was a junior at Gunn High in Palo Alto and you came and spoke to our Black student body, which was a very small number about, you know, your practice in East Palo Alto and about um, going to law school, but continuing our education. And um, it had a profound impact on me and my life and the work that I do and my interest in the legal system. And then as a student at San Jose State in my criminology class, and can't remember the year, maybe 1983, I came and I watched you um, when you were a superior court judge. So, but before we jump into the book, I want to- but Wait a minute, I got
1: I to gotta jump in and okay. just say to you, Andre, thank you for engaging me in conversation and I want to take full credit for the fact that you are one of the leaders of Santa Clara County I'll take full credit for it so
0: <laughs>
1: thank you so much though thank All
0: right. you well you know before we jump into the book I, I just want to pause for a moment in the ALF way and do a check-in and, and and this check-in is really coming from the community to you and is acknowledge acknowledging your courage and your fortitude to write this book The many battles you face, the racism, the personal attacks, the pressures, the constant weight of being Black in these white spaces, and the pressures of being a Black woman in these male spaces. So we honor you by bringing you this opportunity of allowing us to come into the bedroom of the judiciary system, really through your pain, trauma, your joy, your celebrations, and really give you back your power and your space to heal. And I just want to start with that. Before we jump into the first question. So let's jump into the first question. So what motivated you to write this tell-all book? And how were you able to have such an impeccable recall over your entire time on the bench?
1: Her Honor is what I call a primoir. It's part primer about our legal system and part memoir about my experiences on the bench. So I never thought about writing a book about judging when I was on the bench. Uh, what I did write though, were letters to my parents. Um, I sent letters, wrote letters to my parents every Friday about the last seven or eight years that I was on the bench. I wrote them because they loved hearing about all the cases I presided over. And the, the letters didn't just detail the cases. They also I also wrote about how I felt about this. These were very private letters. Um, and Andrea, I'm not talking emails, I'm talking letter letters, like letter writing with the postage stamp on the envelope. Um, and I think it's an art that we've gotten away from that I hope people can get back to if we're not already letter writers. People love to get letters. I think it's important. So I wrote these letters, you can imagine, for seven years every Friday. And I picked Fridays because Friday afternoons, there the courts, generally there weren't cases going in the afternoons because we were preparing for the cases for Monday. So after I retired, I went back east uh, to just outside of Philadelphia, where I grew up to visit my parents. And at some point, my mother, who was very organized, pulled this box out of the closet. And she said, what do you want me to do with all of these? And I looked in this box and my mother had saved all of the letters. Now, understand, I had not made copies of these letters. I'm just writing to my parents. There's no agenda other than to fill them in. So I packed them up and sent them back here, and there they sat in a box for about two or three years until I decided one day, well, let me take a look at these letters. And I started reading them, and I was stunned by how many cases I had presided over and the the wide variety of cases over which I presided. So I started to get then an idea, well, maybe what should I do with these letters? And that's when the idea started about uh, writing a book. And then the final thing, the thing that pushed me to actually get started was, and and something that happened in Santa Clara County, and it had to deal with the recall of Aaron Persky that I write about in the book. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, outspoken against the recall, because I believe it was a threat, and it was a threat to judicial independence. But about the book, it was that I interacted with a very educated electorate here in Santa Clara County, and I was shocked by how little people knew about what trial judges do about the legal system and about judicial independence. When I would raise that term, I'd either get, well, what is that? Or I'd hear, well, that's just a cover for judges. They're just closing the wagons and that's all that is. So I was really shocked by that and decided I need to write a book that informs people, I hope in an entertaining way about the legal system. And to assure there's credibility, I wrote about my own experiences.
0: Well, you know, as you said, in an entertaining way, it was both, it was both humor, uh, some sadness, uh, some frustration. So you covered um, a, a variety of different feelings that, that I took from reading the book. What have you learned from this process?
1: Well, first of all, I, I didn't know that I could write. So I could write legal briefs, but I'd never just written from the heart about things other than letters to my parents. So I learned that with some discipline and determination and motivation, um, just about anybody can write. I really believe that. This process took me one year where I had to be very disciplined. I think you can't undertake, if anyone is interested in writing a book, um, the process is one where you have to be very disciplined. And so I wrote four to five hours every day for a year. My writing time was in the afternoons, mornings I have to get exercise and then I'd sit from noon to five or one to six and and just write. Um, so what I learned from this process is that if you want to write about, for, especially a memoir, you have to be brutally honest. Uh, and you, as you noted in the book, I mean, I write when I mean, I, I wasn't perfect. I didn't do things always the right way. I didn't feel good about some of the things that I had to do on the bench. Um, but that's part of the whole experience of being a judge. So I, and I've learned now, uh, since the book has been out that people indeed are interested in this subject matter. And, um, I've heard back from people who have been very moved by what I've written. I've heard back from judges, I've heard from lawyers and from non-legal people at all mm-hmm. who would say to me, I had no idea that, oh, you, you judges, you have feelings, yeah. have feelings and, um, so it, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Um, writing's not easy, but I'm, I'm just I'm pleased with how this all came out and with whom I work, which are these wonderful publishers um, at Celadon, which is an imprint of Macmillan. They have been fantastic in editing and in working with me in this process.
0: Wow, that's great. Well, let's talk about your very first case. It was somewhat of an anomaly. Two Black women, as a plaintiff and as a defendant, about hair, and you—you you, there was a comment that you made, you wrote hair for black folks, especially black women, is as important as the air we breathe. And I also noticed something very unique about your book as you actually credited your hairstylist. So tell us about this issue of black hair and why <laughs> did you decide to credit your hairstylist? I don't know if I've ever seen that before.
1: You haven't, I will tell you that, nobody <laughs> has. Um, so this first case, and I write about it in the first chapter called Bitten by the Judge Bug, was before I became a judge. It's because of that case is when I decided that I wanted to try to get a judgeship. Um, I got a random phone call from a man named Mark Thomas. I did not know him. And he's a judge on the municipal court at the time. So we're talking 1980-ish. And he called me. I was the assistant dean at Stanford Law School. And he said, look, we have a judge pro tem program in Santa Clara County. Pro tem from the Latin meaning for the time. And what it meant was a lawyer could be a judge for a day and preside over a small claims case. Small claims cases are what Judge Judy presides over. These are where lawyers aren't allowed and people are suing each other over a limited amount of money. So he said, I want to diversify this list, people who are on the list to be pro tem judges. I want women, people of color. That's why I'm calling you. Can I put you on the list? So I thought, sure, fine. Put me on the list and didn't think anymore about it. So then a couple of, I don't know, months later, I get this phone call. It's from the court in Sunnyvale saying, your name has come up on the list. Um, Your date is this date. Do you want to still come and be a pro tem judge? And I go, sure. What the hell? Fine. So on the appointed day, this was the afternoon. I drive down, I get a robe, put it on, and I walk in the courtroom. And as you just described, Andre, I walk in and the the only people in the courtroom, because this is just one case, no spectators, are two black women, one suing the other and one was suing the other over her hair. And basically one was the hairstylist and the other was the person who got her hair done and she didn't wanna pay the hairstylist because she did not like the way the hairstylist had braided her hair. Uh, So I'm gonna leave a teaser as to what happened at that hearing and what I decided. But I will say that as I was driving home, I decided I like this. I really like making decisions when people can't work things out themselves. Um, so hair, so I write about that in the first chapter of the book, and I write a little more about hair, about how my two sisters and I, uh, when we were growing up, my mother, uh, did our hair and we had, you know, really straightened our hair and tight braids and had ribbons tied on them when, if it was Sunday. Um, and I also write about Rabia, who was my is my hairstylist and who just saw me all through my time on the bench. There is an image that I hope you can show. I, I I don't see the one go up of my parents. And then there's an image of all of the hairstyles that I wore during the time I was on the bench. I mean, 20 years, that's a lot of different hairstyles. I remember so the I hope, afro. So I hope we can get that up. The <laughs> afro was not on, didn't come till much, much, much later. Um, so if you look on uh there's my parents. So that's my mother's name was Clara. My father's name was Lewis. Uh Lewis and Clara Hazard, and they're the ones who saved it. And this this is an image of my being after right before I was sworn in in 1982, becoming the first black woman judge in all of Northern California. My two daughters were are pictured there are now in their 40s. Uh, and my parents are no longer with us. They died a short while ago. Uh, and there I am being sworn in by Felton Henderson. To begin my journey in 1982 so um to get back to the hair um there there we go so I started at the very bottom in the middle that's the it's a color photo and the hair is straightened and flipped right. up so I can fling my hair you see that and then it gets a little shorter the one on the left and that's when I was first on the superior court 1988 and then you can see how it changes I had uh dreads um, in there's one corner Then I had a box with a fade um, <laughs> and then the, the short fro, that's just a very shortcut. So, so hair, I write in the first chapter, it was very important. It's an important part of my being. And and no small measure when I would go out on the bench because there'd never been a black woman judge before. And there was not the proliferation of judges you see on TV now. I mean, it's no big deal, but back then there weren't any. So I'd get a lot of frown smiles, double takes when I would come out, depending upon, of course, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't even matter what hairstyle I had. Uh, so Andre, you mentioned the, the back flap of the book. So if you buy the book, if you have the book, you'll see on the inside back flap, there are always credits for the book design, the design of the cover, and also the photograph, if there's a photograph on the cover. Um, and that's it. That's what it's standard in the book industry. I asked my editor, my publisher, if we could also have a credit for my hair for the haircut that I had that shows on the front of the book. And I don't know if you can put the book cover up now, Akemi. Um, and uh, I was told initially that that's not done in the book industry. Uh, you, you only give credits for the design and a photograph that hair credits are given for in magazines. So I pushed back a little bit. We had a big uh, fuller conversation. I have such a wonderful editor who finally said, yeah, why not? So I believe Her Honor is the first book in all of the book world ever where there's been a credit for hair. And you will see Rabia Zara's name um, giving me a credit for her having cut my hair for the for the photo. Um, story, you know, the, the lesson learned is, you know, let's, you know, think outside the box. Think outside the box. And um, that's what uh, Black folks have had to do since the very beginning. Always had to think outside the box find a way where there is no way.
0: Yeah. And I and I also you know the the statement that you you that was in that same part where you're talking about this is if this case had been assigned to one to one of the judges on the court it would have landed with a white male judge clueless about roots braids cornrows and matted hair. So I think you also drew you know drew the correlation to being culturally proficient, and making sure there's folks on the bench that look like the people that are coming forward. So I really appreciate that.
1: Exactly, exactly. That is why it is so important that we have a diverse judiciary, that we have people from different backgrounds. Uh, the fight is still on. We have more diversity, but we still have a long way to go.
0: Well, let, let's jump to a couple of your, and I, and I think I've, I, I, I was a little bit surprised by how many different courts Um, that you presided over, family court, probate court, criminal court, juvenile dependency court, small claims court, traffic court. So so let's discuss foster care, especially as 59% of all adoptions come from foster care. And you wrote that annually more than 400,000 children in our foster care system, approximately 114,000 who cannot be returned to families await adoption. Nearly 20,000 are never adopted every year. You describe a painful journey of Irene Young. And you stated the system's gravest failure was in terminating the parental rights of Irene Young's mother before finding a permanent home. This case resonated with me because obviously over the past 28 years running Unity Care, serving youth in foster care, I've seen thousands of Irenes that are lost in the system, failed adoptions, terminations, parental rights, no connection to their family. But really stuck out to me, Judge, was that there was really not a mention of Irene's African-American father, the paternal side of the family, which... It's oftentimes a common thing within child welfare. So what do you think the system should have done different in this case?
1: Sure. Uh, There's a chapter in the book called Would You Be Mine? And it's about adoptions. I did preside over adoptions for two years on the court. And for the most part, it's a happy occasion. You're making families, you're creating families, and you're mostly giving children homes. I mean, there are all kinds of adoptions. There are adult adoptions, step-parent adoptions, but the ones that... People are most familiar with are the individual adoptions, and or or called stranger adoptions, where usually a child from who's not related, of course, is brought into a family. Uh, You mentioned the case of Irene. I don't give her last name. In fact, I changed her name uh, for privacy purposes. But this was a case that was so traumatizing, not just to her, but to me and everybody involved in the system, because I had to set aside her adoption. This child had been abandoned, then adopted and adopted by she's biracial, adopted by a black woman. And it turned out that this child had been so damaged in this process that this black woman had to was literally in fear of her own safety in life. And I had to undo, set aside the adoption. So now I had to tell this child she was being abandoned again. So you ask what what went wrong, What should the system have done? And I do call the various agencies and departments out in this book when I talk about it. This child was the product of a child. her mom was just was very young when she had her. And the two of them moved from foster home to foster home until such time as the um, social services department decided it was appropriate to separate them, primarily because, Irene's mom had been molested. So they separated them, put them, which was a travesty. And so they just stayed apart. And they were, the the two, that link was gone. No effort was ever made to identify the father. And she just kind of languished in the system until she was adopted by this black woman who then I had to set aside the adoption. So the problem in, in this one case was that They terminated this is the Department of Social Services recommended and a judge, not me, terminated the parental rights of Irene's mother. That's the only person she knew in the system. So they terminated her rights with without before placing her with either a relative, a family member or anyone. So this child was just loose in the system with no parent at all. Uh, So when I had to set aside the adoption, she she was again just completely alone. This should never have happened. Additionally, social services never informed the adoptive mother, the black woman, of the behavioral emotional strong basic oh. uh, emotional issues this child <laughs> had. So as a result of all of that, the, the the adoptive mother really didn't have the full information and likely would not have stepped in to adopt.
0: Well, you know, Your Honor, um, you know, you you're this book was calling out folks. I mean, you call folks on the carpet. And and I think that um, oftentimes um, we work in institutions, we work in systems where we don't feel that we have the ability to speak up or we're afraid to speak up or where we feel we're handcuffed to speak up. And so that's what I really appreciate about the book, because it was very transparent. You were very clear about where things that were broken, that can be fixed. And you're also very clear about you know, challenges that you faced um, you know, sitting from uh, your judgeship. I want to jump to, to um, the three strikes. Um, that was another area. Um, and, and you wrote, only two years after California voted for the three strikes law, African-Americans made up 43% of the third strike defendants, imprisoned at more than three 13 times the rate of whites. What I'm sure was surprising to many in Santa Clara County um, is that Santa Clara County was the worst in the state with the highest disproportionality of Blacks making up only 2.7%, but 27% of the three striker populations. That's 10 times the general population. I also draw a parallel to foster care because we see those same double-digit numbers around disparity right here in Silicon Valley, the land and the world of innovation and opportunities but our disproportionality is worth in some states in the south why do you think that's the case
1: so race has always been the elephant in in the courtroom everybody's you know for for ever since the beginning tiptoed around it it's always been there racism is baked into the legal system in america and so since primarily the black lives matter movement and the, the murder of george Floyd the elephant, no one's, they're not tiptoeing around the elephant anymore. Uh, People are calling it out. And in the book, I write about how I attempted to address race in the courtroom. But again, this is in the 1990s, um, when judges, prosecutors didn't want to hear it. And I write about how, indeed, I was shut down and push back on it. I also write about the conflict that I experienced in being the only black judge on a bench that had all of these people of color, black and brown, so many of them landing in my courtroom where I had to uphold this draconian three strikes law and sentence these folks to life in prison when I didn't want to do it. So why did I do it? Well, judges take an oath to uphold all the laws, not the laws that the only ones that we like. It's all of them. But there's a passage in the book that I and it's very short that I I write about the conflict. And I I just like to um, read that to you. And I think it's on. Yeah, here we are. And it's on page 254. And I write the following. And my tenure on the criminal court bench was a conflicted one. By simply donning my robe, I knew that I lent legitimacy to a system that disproportionately targeted people of color. The majority of cases over which I presided involved defendants who looked like me. My presence on the bench gave defendants of color hope that they would be seen not as a bunch of gangbangers, thugs, and drug addicts, but as human beings, and it would allow for the possibility that many, perhaps most, were better than the worst crimes they had ever committed. Hmm. One of my life's sad recognitions is that it is far easier to understand the humanity of even the most egregious of offenders when that person resembles you, less so when she does not. Hmm. Um, So with that conflict, you talk about the three strikes law. When those cases came before me, I had to uphold the law, but that didn't mean I couldn't didn't try to find ways to not enforce it when I felt it was not right to enforce it. And sometimes I was successful and sometimes I was not. And I write in the book about the time that I was not, and which really led me to say, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. And it's the case of Leo Hill. Mm -hmm. Um, And another teaser, it's just, um, I wrote um, very frankly, about that case and what it was I did, how I felt about what I did. And then there's a follow up to what happened to Leo Hill.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that um, the thing that stands out for me in reading this book is your transparency about how you felt, because I know the pressure or I can only imagine the pressure you have you had to have felt as being a judge, making life critical decisions, but then also being boxed in by the racist policies and laws that constrict to what you can do. Um, so I, I I can feel the pain in the reading when I was reading some of these passages.
1: You know, Andre, um, I have been contacted by a number of people who've read the book, and one of them is a sitting judge in LA. He was a brother, and he he called me and he just said, you know, I read this book and he says, I'm keeping it right here in my chambers, because what you describe back when you were on the bench is exactly what I'm dealing with now. So we we the struggle continues. Sure. It's and, and I now know it was important for me to write exactly about how I felt with, about those pressures and the tensions. But I don't want people to think that, oh, you know, judging was just one big, huge, heavy burden. It wasn't. Uh, it was the passion of my life. It was the joy of my life. Yes, I had some God-awful days, but I had some wonderful days as well.
0: Absolutely. You know, I, I had, I had spoke to just in the last two days, uh, three separate folks about um, your book and and all of them have had personal experiences in front of you. And the common theme was that they, that you spoke to them directly about, you know, whatever their situation was, you were um, very, uh, you connected to them. Um, they trusted the words that you said and that they knew that you were there for their best interests. And so that nice is a hear. testament to what also comes very forward in the book.
1: That was nice to hear. I, I do want to say that I, can I just give one quick anecdote about Absolutely. someone else who was in front of, in my court? So I'm parked outside grocery outlet in Palo Alto. I get in my car, I'm ready to go. And there's a car next to me and there's a brother sitting in the passenger seat. He rolls down the window and says, are you Judge Cordell? So I roll down mine. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, I was in your court. And it was clearly back in the early 1990s, and you know, and he said, uh, and you know, you were very fair to me, and uh, you gave me time served, whatever it was, and and uh, so uh, can I, uh, you can I get your book? And I said, well, yeah, you can buy the book. He says, well, do you have, you don't have any books in your car? And I go, no, no, I don't have any books. He says, you should be selling them out your trunk. You can make a <laughs> lot of money selling out your trunk. You should. And I'm like, okay. All right. So, you know, I drive off and as I drive off, he's behind me. The driver gets in the car and he just yells, sell them! out, sell them out your trunk. You know, and I'm laughing about it. Right. It's it, But, you know, think about it. that. That's really black economics. I mean, Absolutely. if you go to Philly, New York, or, you know, wherever people, black folks were selling stuff right on the street, out the trunk. So I, I get what he was saying. And no, I'm not selling them out of my trunk yet.
0: Mm-hmm. That's hmm. That's a lot. You know, FUBU, I mean, Damon, John, if you can That's go down right. the list and see folks. Um, so I, I know that for the interest of time, I do have two more questions, but okay. I, I do want to pop back to the conversation you mentioned earlier about uh, Judge Persky. And, and, and you said yourself, you were the most vocal of the judges surrogates against the recall. Um, and you also talked about the California Canon three bill prohibition on public comment that muzzled Judge Persky from saying anything. Do you think that if he was able to respond, that that would have have changed the public's opinion or staged off any recall about what happened?
1: Yes, Andre, I do think things would have been different. Um, And I was the only judge sitting or non-sitting who spoke out against the recall, even though some judges were against it. They did not speak out um, because they were afraid. Um, Do I think it would have made a difference? Yes. So at the time, there's no right of self-defense for judges. If you're a sitting judge and you get attacked, And even if a big lie is being told about what you decided, what you did, you are not permitted to speak out. There is no right of self-defense. And contrast that with someone who's accused of murder, they go to court, they have a right to speak out and have self-defense, but judges don't. Um, So I think that if Aaron had had the opportunity to speak up and, and explain what he did and to explain the cases that the other side lied about and brought up about his quote unquote track record that that would have made a difference. I ended up being his surrogate because of this no self-defense rule. And people would say to me, well, if this judge, you know, didn't do all this stuff, he would be speaking up. And I would say, as you just noted, there is a canon, a rule that says judges can't or they can be disciplined. And it was poo-poo. It's like, no, we're not going for that. People speak up if they believe they've been wronged Mm -hmm. after Aaron was recalled and removed from the bench. The rule was changed. So now judges have the right of self-defense. So if they're attacked in the media or if individuals are putting stuff out on social media, then judges can speak up. Um, And I do want to add one other part about this is that when I was on the bench, there was not social media. Mm-hmm. So today, it's really hard being a state trial court judge with social media because people, if they don't like what you've done uh, in a case, they can just put it out on social media, misconstrue it, and it just goes crazy. It goes viral, mm-hmm. and it's very hard then to to combat that. So I tell state court judges judges now on the bench, you better get uh, social media savvy. You better figure out how you can respond when you get attacked because uh, recall is a very real thing that can, can just take off and happen.
0: So judge Cudell, do you think that if the defendant in that case was African-American, the outcome would have been the same?
1: So I, you know, I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about the actual case. Mm-hmm. This was the Stanford swimmer who was a freshman and, um, Uh, And I write about a little bit in the book. Um, Two things. I want to say, first of all, those people who knew anything about Aaron Persky, he was a judge for 13 years uh, and in very good standing. And he had a reputation for being uh, especially caring and compassionate for defendants of color. Mm -hmm. So it's really sad that he's no longer on the bench because he was one of those who would just do the right thing and not be uh, swayed by the person's color. Mm -hmm um so if the defendant had been of color i'm not sure what your question is would he have been
0: recalled well that do you think the, the sentence i mean i think that was the the controversy was the sentence right
1: uh, aaron persky would not have changed the sentence at all if they okay. in other words if the stanford swimmer had been black
0: mm-hmm.
1: he, he would not have changed the sentence at all and and the sentence is one i didn't disagree with it was six months mm-hmm. in jail uh which was recommended by probation This this young man had no prior record and he was thoroughly intoxicated. There's a lot. I don't really want to get into it Mm -hmm. because the book, I deal with the judicial part of this, which is the recall. Uh, By the way, in California, a judge can be recalled for no reason at all. If you don't like what I'm wearing, get a recall petition, get enough signatures, Mm -hmm. it can go on the ballot. My recommendation in the book is that the law in California should be changed. It's fine to have recalls, but only for a reason. And the reason should be if the judge is engaged in malfeasance misconduct or be convicted of a serious crime, that judge should not have the right to, to, for the, to remain on the bench for the term of that judge. And the public should have a right to hold that judge accountable by using a recall. Okay.
0: All right. So my last question before we start going to the public for questions, selecting jurors. And this is a place that I think in general, you know, for folks that don't truly understand the, ju- the judiciary system, and we see it from television. We know that, you know, African-American defendants convicted by all white juries is really the bedrock of our judiciary system. And you articulated extremely well in layman terms, you know, the racial biases within, and I had never heard this term before, the verdier and the preemptory process that I'm sure many of us, you know, on the Zoom call are not familiar with as well. So can you share what that means and one of your recommendations for fixing it?
1: Absolutely. There's a chapter in the book called Thank You for Your Service. It's all about jury duty. And I take you through a trial I actually presided over, and we stop at each phase of it. And the first part of it is jury selection. And and I'll just talk jury selection. I'm just going to talk about the criminal cases. Um, So in jury selection, you have a prosecutor and a defense attorney, and there are challenges for cause so that if I come in and say, I don't like that offense attorney, I hate him and I've experienced with him. Well, that's for cause. You can't sit on the case because you're so biased. But then there are peremptory challenges. And these are challenges where the lawyers don't have to give a reason. In California, if it's a felony, each side gets 10 peremptory challenges. Just excuse juror number five and you don't have to say why. However, if one side, a lawyer says, well, wait a minute, you just dismiss three African-American jurors, peremptory challenges for no cause. And I think the reason you've done it is racially motivated. When that happens, the judge then turns to the prosecutor, and usually it's a prosecutor, and says, give me the reason why you dismiss those three. And the prosecutor must give race-neutral explanations. But it's up to the judge to decide if they're credible, if that's really good explanations what judges have done historically and these are trial court judges around the country is never question these race neutral explanations and just say oh that's fine uh they they're out and what i bring up is that peremptory challenges are used basically to create these all-white juries to exclude people of color and they've been doing it for years and i write the history of peremptory challenges it's interesting So this whole thing about race neutral explanation came about from a U.S. Supreme Court case, and it was called Batson, the Batson case. And as a result of that case, the Supreme Court said you have to give race neutral explanations. But Thurgood Marshall, who was on the court when the Batson case was decided, said this, and he wrote this in addition to the opinion. Merely allowing defendants the opportunity to challenge the racially discriminatory use of peremptory challenges in individual cases will not end the illegitimate use of the peremptory challenge. Any prosecutor can easily assert facially neutral reasons for striking a juror and trial courts are ill-equipped to second-guess those reasons. He went on to say that peremptory challenges, and this was a few years later, three years later, are the greatest embarrassment in the criminal justice system. So um, I write in the book um, about North Carolina where prosecutors had a big meeting, a big conference. And part of the conference was a seminar on how to give race neutral explanations that would get past the test so you could get rid of black jurors. And they even had a handout giving examples, you know, of things to say, which were really based on stereotypes of black folks. You know, uh, the person was uh, glaring at me, staring at me too hard and I felt uncomfortable. Okay, fine, race neutral. Um, Those those kinds of things. So I I have a recommendation for a fix and the fix is in in California because California, the governor signed in 2020 the the uh, Racial Justice Act, which basically the goal is to get racism out of our criminal legal system. And mind you, I don't call it a criminal justice system. We're not there yet. We don't have the justice. So how do you get this? One way is dealing with peremptory challenges. This act, this law says that judges must question, look beneath the racially neutral answers or explanations that are given. And if required, hold separate hearings in order to determine whether or not these peremptory challenges are motivated by race. Mm-hmm. So we're we're in the lead. No other state has done this. And I'm not clear that we've even put it into, implemented this act yet, but at least we have it on the books.
0: So, you know, we sit back and we just had this with the uh, Arbery trial. Um, You know, we sit back as our community and everybody is already expecting that based upon what the jury looks like, what the outcome is going to be. Because as you mentioned earlier, obviously when we have common experiences, then we can better relate to you know, the folks that are in front of us. And so 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 that's that, that's what happens kind of behind the curtain. Um, these peremptory challenges before we finally see what the final jury selection looks like, because oftentimes we never know why does it take so long? And they say, oh, they're doing the jury selection. So that explains why this is, takes take so long. And sounds like there's some limitations on how many an attorney can have. But the system is not doing what it should be, what it should do.
1: Exactly. And jury duty, jury service is so important to the integrity of our legal system. Um, and one of the things I point out is that uh, jurors you know, don't get compensated. And if they do, it's very little. In California, you get $15 a day and not counting the first day you don't get get that that's ridiculous that sends a message that jurors don't matter so i have recommendations another teaser i'll mm-hmm. leave it in the fix for what we can do about juror compensation around the country
0: absolutely and then i do have one last question for you and this was and you know we've seen on on tv court shows the kind of the comical relationship between the judges and their and their bailiffs and tell us a little bit about bonita your bailiff
1: now, I wish I'd sent you all a photo of her as well. Um, so uh, most in every court trial courts, you get to have a bailiff, which is a law enforcement person. And in Santa Clara County, it's a sheriff, uh, someone in the sheriff's department, a sheriff's deputy who sits with the judge in the court and, and basically protects the judge, keeps order, uh, packs a gun um, and just it's just there to keep everything calm. Benita Jones, who lives in San Jose, a San Jose State graduate uh, and from L.A., she was from I think she's from Compton, uh, was my bailiff for the entire time that I was on the bench. So we're talking 20 years of this Black woman who is a couple of years younger than I uh, working as a team. And we got to a point, and I write about this in the first chapter of the book, where we could just we could just read each other without even having to say too much at all uh, by just kind of her look. And there were times, for example, when I had a defendant in the courtroom and he was agitated and I knew I had to sentence him and he wasn't going to be happy. Um, and so I would kind of nod at Benita. So when I was about to, to issue a sentence, she would just very casually walk over, stand right Beside him, let him know that she was right there. And I've seen her occasionally. She would bend down and sometimes whisper just ten seconds, very calmly and quietly. And then I would pose a sentence, and there would be no problem. And I know I've I've asked her. I said, "What do you say to them?" She said, "That's all right. That's okay." Mm -hmm. So she doesn't tell me what she says to them. (laughs) Um, But she was she was uh, my protector, my friend, and we we still remain in touch. So I do write about her in the book, and she appears throughout the book.
0: Well, I I know that. Imagine the appearance of walk into a courtroom and you see two black women in charge of that courtroom I mean, that has black, a
1: black lady courtroom.
0: There you go. Um, well, I want to go to some of the questions sure. from the audience. Um, so the first question is, I would be interested in hearing how this experience as judge as a judge played a role in Judge Cordell's work with the community and the police department as the police auditor.
1: So I don't write anything in the book about police auditing because that was well before I was on the bench. Uh, but but I'm going to take the first part, which is about community and, and being on the bench. I was a judicial activist. Now, if you say that term, generally it's a pejorative, it's negative. People think of judicial activism of people, judges that go rogue. They don't pay attention to judicial precedent or the rules. That's not my definition of a judicial activist. That's a bad one. The good one is, Anytime you get a job as a judge, because they're just a handful of these, there are only 1,600 judges in the entire state of 40 million people in the state of California. This is a real precious opportunity. And my view is every judge should be an activist judge, meaning when as you're presiding over cases, but you are taking every opportunity you can to make this system better than what it is, to improve it. And um, I write in the book about my the times i tried to change the system sometimes successfully sometimes not but what hit me in the face is that systems resist change mm-hmm. i don't care if it's your foster care system if it's your education system businesses all systems resist change they don't they don't want to change so if you and, and it's too in the legal system. So when I push back to try to think outside the box, figure out things that should be done differently, I got tremendous pushback, which I write about in the book. And mm-hmm. I say to lawyers, to judges, to everybody, you know, it's, it's important, I think, to, to, be, to, to, to push back when we see that systems are not pre- performing as they should.
0: Absolutely. Um, another question is about the good times on the bench. Um, give us one story that was considered a good time in the work that you did as a a judge. Um,
1: one, one of the things judges do is, is decide if you can change your name. And, uh, I, I love that being on that assignment because you, you give people what they want. They want to change their name. And there were times in that assignment where I. I laughed. Uh, I mean, I didn't. I don't fall. I I quietly do. I keep poker face, and I go into chambers and laugh. But people in the courtroom were laughing. And I had a, a young man come in. He was a young white guy, and name change. And all you have to do is tell me what name you want, because they file a petition, and then you have to uh, have it advertised in a little legal notices. Yeah, people, you have to let the world know that you're changing your name. And, and, you know, he'd done all of that. And then they have to tell me, why do you want to change your name? So he stands up for me and I have to give him credit for being honest. And I write about this in the book where he said, I'm changing my name because I ran up all this debt on my credit cards with all these companies. And so I'm going to change my name and start over. So I looked at him, I said, you can't do that. You can't do that's fraud. You can't just do that. And he says, what are you kidding me? I can't. So, you know, everybody was kind of chuckling and, you know, he walks out despondent. Uh, but then the real, I real feel good and I end the chapter with this and I'll just leave it as part of the teaser is that there were trans people, men and women who would come in to get their names changed. And I write about the case of a trans woman, uh, who came in to have her name changed. And I would generally, this is in the nineties now because today it's like, ain't no no big deal. Uh, I I took it at the end because I didn't want any, any embarrassment for this person. And so I did the name change and this person then, was very happy she left the court and the next day she wrote me sent me a letter I got a letter and that letter is in the book. Mm-hmm. And let me just say about the letter the last sentence of that chapter is it doesn't get any better than this so mm-hmm. I want people to, to read it. The backstory is when you want to put a letter in a book that's been written to you, you can't do it unless you have the permission of the writer. So I thought when the publisher said you have to get permission I said, well wait a minute, that's my letter she wrote it to me. In the publishing world, you have to get permission. I had to find her and it had been 40 years and I found her (laughs) and God bless the internet. And so I found her, called her, she remembered me and she hesitated a little bit. And then she said, okay, I will give you permission if you will just block block out, redact my last name. So her first name is Lisa. And uh, she said, and then one other condition and that is that you give me a signed copy of your book. I have done that. I actually met her in person that's and great. gave her the book. So that's, that's the great. backstory on it.
0: That's great. Um, well, let me go to another question. Uh, in Early in Judge Cordell's career on the bench, she was working with judges who lacked integrity. She called them out, drawing cartoons, and was subjected, <laughs> was subjected to a lot of negativity by her fellow judges. I admired her strength and willingness to advocate in an interesting way for judiciary integrity. How does she think about this now?
1: So that, thank you for raising that. It's in the book. It's in a chapter called uh, Bad Judges. So I write about some really bad judges, but I put myself in there because I was deemed to be bad. And what I had done was draw cartoons. And I think you have a couple of them that we can show, Akemi. And the idea was this. I wasn't trying to, to, okay. Yeah, I was a little bit. Kind of getting, hitting back at judges who I knew were not, doing the right things on the bench. And the other part was I like to draw. I like to do cartooning. I've always done it since I was a little kid. Can you put it back up there for me? And so, nope, one back. There you go. Um, So I, I did a lot of doodling at the bench and then I started drawing these cartoons. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. I drew cartoons that display you have to figure out what the legal term is. And I donated these to nonprofits um such as legal advocates for children and youth. They were put into calendars and they sold calendars. The first year, they uh, made twelve thousand dollars selling these calendars with so each year I did them. So the second year I did them, uh, the cartoon on the lower lower right side, you see a judge, and what's can anybody guess what the legal term is? So the judge is holding a bottle of johnny walker red okay so the legal term is take the fifth mm. get it <laughs> fifth of, fifth of. so they're very concrete so the one up on the top is clarence thomas and he's holding a sign and each of them are a bunch of uh sentences it says give me liberty or give me death death be not proud death, where is thy sting? There is uh, whatever. And another, I can't hardly read it right now. So the legal term
0: time to do this. <laughs>
1: well, I'm going to take the legal term for this one is death sentences. Got it. Death sentences. All right. Um, so there were some judges who were very upset, particularly about the take the fifth. Um, and it's just a generic white guy judge. I mean, that's all it is. Um, and so uh, a complaint was lodged against me with the disciplinary body for judges in California. The Um, Commission on Judicial Performance. So teaser, um, it really went where I didn't think it was gonna go. And let's just say I had to lawyer up and deal with the whole Mm -hmm. bit about drawing a cartoon. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Um, One other question. You can
1: take that down Kimmy, thank you.
0: Another question is, there are people in prison today who were convicted in the past in Santa Clara County by all white juries engineered by racist DAs. What should be done to bring justice to those prisoners?
1: Ah, uh, the sad truth is nothing can be done. First, the law uh, provides that you have a right to a trial by a jury of your peers. And the definition according to the US Supreme Court is that peers are not people who look like you. Peers can be people who are people who live in your community. So that's the first thing. Second, um, I have no doubt that in many instances, Prosecutors in Santa Clara County, and that's not unique, it's throughout the country, utilize peremptory challenges to take people of color off. Why? Because they don't want, their belief is that if they have a person of color sitting in judgment of of a a person of color who's a defendant, then they're always going to be in that person's favor. That is not true. That is a stereotype, but that's what was utilized. It is two things there's something called a statute of limitations. Meaning, a certain amount of time goes by. You can't ever appeal your case or try to get it undone. So, statute of limitations long gone for folks who have undergone this process. Second, it's likely impossible to prove that indeed the peremptory challenges were racially motivated. So, that's that's what makes their plight one where they don't really have a remedy. Uh, what we have today is the Racial Justice Act, which says we want to stop this from ever happening again.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Your Honor, you have a chapter in a book called "The Fix." Tell us, you know, your top two that you would recommend okay. uh, in those in that last chapter. Sure. Um,
1: first of all, it's important, I think, uh, given that I have concerns about the legal system, that I put recommendations in for changing it and for making it better. Uh, So that's what I did in the fix. And there are many, many more things that need to be fixed. I picked the 10 that are most significant uh, that I describe in the book. So one that comes to mind that I think is really important is, is, is that we need to change the Constitution of California where it provides for the recall of judges to provide that that has to be for specific reasons that I mentioned earlier. And the reason I say that that's of paramount importance is that there are three legs to our democracy, the legislative, executive, and the judiciary. If any one of those legs gets pulled out, we don't have a democracy. And as all of you know, right now, our democracy is in a very fragile state. Uh, I am concerned about the attacks against judges and my concern is that judges are now being elected to the bench by special moneyed interests. who are not looking out for uh, to apply laws equally and fairly. So I think it is important that we change the whole recall um, so that we don't ding judges who are exercising their discretion and doing it lawfully. Second is the judicial elections. I have a chapter in the book called Judges for Sale. I was elected. I was elected to the superior court. So I, I know of what I speak. I am against judicial elections, period. Uh, it's all about money. Judicial races now are, can run up to the millions of dollars. And that money comes from donations from businesses, from the corporate world, and from other special money interests and from lawyers. And in my view, you cannot have an independent judiciary if judges are bought. And that's really what's happening with judicial elections. I want them completely abolished. And I want us to go to a system where there are independent nominating commissions that vet people who want to stay on the bench, who want to continue on, and those who want to come on the bench. And they are thoroughly vetted in a public process where um, the public has a right to, uh, to look at the, watch the, the uh, body at work. And then these vetted people are then given over to a governor and that the governor must pick from the those that have been vetted. In California, we have something called a Jenny Commission that does this work, but the governor is not obligated to pick anybody that the Jenny Commission has vetted. And I think that should change.
0: Well, I will tell you, Your Honor, um, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, you know, the there are so many Nuggets from this conversation as well as from the book, and I encourage everyone that um, is listening that has not yet read the book to go out and get it, because it is a phenomenal read. Um, I say it's no holds bar I mean you go at it and just as those cartoons uh, characters that you created back then um, you are you're being very clear you know, as to where the challenges are and things that need to be fixed. And I think that's very brave and honorable of you. Um, so thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. for Thank the you
1: time so there. much. And thank you for taking the time to read the book. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of interviews and I've had interviewers who've kind of glanced at it and read a little but You you have really done a job and I'm so appreciative. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, Judge Cradell.
1: ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.